Hello everyone and welcome. I'm Sorsha O'Callaghan. I'm the director of the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI and welcome to our event on the drought and food security crisis in the Horn of Africa. And we know the situation in the Horn is now alarming. Experts are suggesting that by September, 20 million people will face acute food insecurity. There have been four failed rainy seasons and there's a genuine risk of a fifth. And this is something that hasn't been seen for the last 40 years. And an already dire humanitarian situation now risks becoming catastrophic. And Somalia is most at risk. But with attention focused on Ukraine and other humanitarian crises, the humanitarian response so far is nowhere near where it should be. And appeals for funding for Somalia are critically low at just 18%. So how bad is the situation likely to get? And what does the humanitarian response need to look like now? And why is a crisis of this enormity not getting the attention and the resources that are required? Well, we have an expert panel today who um, are here to answer those and, and more questions. First, a very warm welcome to, to Mark Lowcock, who's with us here in the room in, in London. Mark um, is, as you know, a former emergency relief coordinator, but he's also an author of his new book, Relief Chief, um, where he writes on issues related to famine, food security, anticipatory action, um, and the Horn, Horn of Africa. And online, we've got a number of, of experts. First, Nemo Hassan, who is the director of the Somalia NGO Consortium, which is a network of Somali and international organizations that work across Somalia's different territories. Ahmed Boubakar is the director of humanitarian affairs in the federal government of Somalia. And Al-Khidr Daloum, who's the Somalia country director with the World Food Programme. We've also got a very large audience online, as well as some people here in ODI in London. So after we've heard from our four panelists, we'd also like to hear from all of you. So if you're online, you please post questions on the screen um, in, the, in the questions and answer bar. And if you'd like to use the closed caption, um, the closed captions, there's an icon on the right of your screen and you can just click it there. We also have a roaming mic. Um, so we'll be taking questions for, for those of you who are in the room. And we encourage you to tweet during the event. We know that this is a crisis that hasn't had the attention it deserves. So please use the hashtag Horn of Africa and HBG's handle um, at HBG underscore ODI. So Nemo, I'd like to turn to you first. Could you please paint the picture for us? What are you and your members seeing on the ground currently? Um, how, you know, what are communities facing and what's your um, what are your thoughts on the situation currently? I think we need to um, unmute you, uh, Nemo. Hi, Sosha. Thank you. Um, technology difficult sometimes. I forgot to unmute and I was talking to myself. Thank you very much for the introduction and thank you for organizing this 
very timely event. And as you said, indeed, um, this um, crisis with a huge magnitude hasn't had the attention it deserves uh, so far. Um, there's a lot to say on what the situation looks like on the ground. I will try to highlight a few key areas. Um, as, as you've already mentioned, um, failure of April to June rains and anticipated failure of September to October rains is setting the stage for record-breaking five-season drought, which we've not seen before. Uh, this would increase the severity and the magnitude of food insecurity, with over 7 million people likely to need food aid into 2023. Currently, the figure stands at 6 million. Somalia is at risk of famine now. According to um, Dangerous Delay 2, a report jointly issued by Oxfam and Save the Children on the 18th of May, on average, one person is likely dying every 48 seconds from acute hunger across Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. Um, in Baidoa IDP camp, we met Hussein, an elderly father of eight who had just arrived, having fled his village after drought ravaged their crops and livestock. He said the people left behind, they have no chance. It's just a matter of time until they die, even here, we might die because we have nothing. Livestock emaciation and excess death are widely reported, with mortality rates likely to reach at least 10 to 30% by September. Of course, the conflict in Ukraine led to record high global food prices, which have had outsized impacts on Somalia, a country that imports over half of its food supplies with prices of cereal and cooking oil shooting up to 160%, making it out of reach for rural and low-income urban households. Although humanitarian assistance uh, by aid organizations and donor communities has played a significant role in moderating the severity of food insecurity so far this year, however, the scale of need outstrips funded food assistance, particularly hard to reach and inaccessible areas. As of late May, the Somali Humanitarian Response Plan for food security is still less and less than 20% funded. A sustained scale up of humanitarian aid is needed to save lives and livelihoods and avert the risk of famine. Uh, back to you, Sosha. So Nima, you mentioned that the, the needs are vastly outstripping the level of resources. And I'm wondering, what do we do in a situation like this? How, you know, if we even if we scale up at this at this time, we're not going to be able to meet all the needs. So what kind of priorities um, do you think we should be focusing on now? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Um, a, a very important uh, question and a question that we've been discussing in the various different levels within the uh, country team, uh, humanitarian stakeholders. Um, I think the discussion that, that we're having currently in country is to ensure that we're having an integrated and principled humanitarian response based on prioritization, targeting the vulnerable communities in the worst affected regions, including hard to reach areas. That is what's actually needed. Um, acute malnutrition and mortality levels have already reached a typical high uh, levels with uh, cases of malnutrition children under the age of five, rising by 40% between January and April this year alone, compared to the same last year 
um, in the same period. Um, to put a human face to, to that, in Kismayo at an IDP camp, we heard of Obah, the four-year-old daughter of a mother, Chawhara Ali. Obah could not keep down um, food and was constantly ill. Her eyes were sunken, her bones protruding, and her skin was pale. The next morning, she died. Jawhara said she will always remember her daughter as a happy girl that used to laugh. Now she worries about what will happen to her son who has the same symptoms. Uh, this is a story that needs to be repeated. It's not only um, um, you know, unique to Ubah's case, but there are many like her already. Unfortunately, the forecasts of below average September to October, uh, short rains uh, further suggest that food security conditions will not improve until mid-2023 at the earliest. We will have more Ubahs without urgent help. Following the famine of 2011, the international community sought to ensure that there would be no repeats of failures that led to famine, with the pledge that the world would heed the warnings and act early in, in, in anticipation to avoid the crisis. However, a decade later, it seems governments and donors have not learned the lessons of 2011 to ensure the urgency to act preemptively to avoid the crisis and dare not fail that promise again. What is required now is an immediate action to scale up, sustain humanitarian assistance at least to the end, until the end of 2022 to prevent rising levels of acute food insecurity, mitigate loss of life and a further risk of famine. Um, I know time is of the essence, but I'd like to just share um, a few good examples. Um, at the same time, we need to respond smarter because of climate change and weak resilience at the community level. This will keep happening again and again and again. When we respond, we ask all partners to consider this. We need to think about how we can build resilience at the same time as saving lives. I wanted to share two quick examples from the Resilience Building NGO Consortium BRICS. In Kismayo and Baidawo, as part of the drought response, BRICS partner NRC worked with uh, water companies to, ins to install 13 kilometers of water pipelines and chaos to 15 IDP settlements, providing mains water access amid drought to 35,000 um, households at 75% um, cheaper price. This helps now with life-saving assistance, but will continue to help far into the future. Similarly, BRICS and NRC installed a borehole in Lanley, a village that had entirely displaced in previous droughts. Now, instead, they have been able to remain in the village and are hosting 3,000 Ethiopian pastoralists who fled into Somalia, seeking water, as well as providing very cheap water to thousands of people in nearby villages. There are a few more good examples of resilient interventions, however, the need to scale up and invest in order to mitigate the adverse impact of the current crisis, particularly drought, is of paramount. Somalia needs help now, but also needs help in breaking the cycle of humanitarian need. And there is plenty of evidence to show this does work. We need to do more. Over to you, Sosha. Thanks, Nemo, for, for painting that picture, but also for highlighting, I guess, some of the, the good practices that are happening with your, your members. I want to turn now to, to you, Ahmed. You're the Director of Humanitarian Affairs at the Federal Government of, of Somalia. Um, 
there's a new government in place. There's a new, well, there's a new president in place. Um, and I'm wondering what the government's plan now is for, for tackling a crisis of this magnitude. I know you're having problems with your, your video link, so I'm hoping you can hear us. Yes, uh, thank you very much, uh, Sora. As uh, you mentioned, Somalia now have a new president, uh, Mr. Hassan, uh, His Excellency Hassan Sheikh Mohammed. And as he has really clear prioritized the, the, the situation by appointing a new envoy. In addition to our ministry's mandate, he also visited by Dao, the epicenter of the crisis where a huge IDBs have accumulated. The president also called out to the international community for support to ensure the further loss of lives and mitigate on the ongoing drought and feminist effect. This figure is that the affected people are alarming. For example, 1.4 million children facing acute malnutrition. 800,000 of these children are IDBs and only uh, in Baidao, there is a 3,100 uh, of these children. So uh, Somalia now is on the front line of climate change and has experienced more than 30 climate-related hazards since 1990, including two alive droughts and 19 floods. The frequency and severity of climate-related hazards is increasing now in Somalia and the Horn of Africa. So... Uh, the deteriorating drought situation has compounded vulnerabilities at a time when the number of people who need urgent and life-saving humanitarian assistance in my country, Somalia, has risen to about 5.7 million. Furthermore, about 80% of all Somalis currently live below the poverty line, especially in areas where humanitarian access is challenged. Despite the drought emergence, funding for humanitarian operations in Somalia this year remains very low, and as the situation it's not improving. We must act rapidly to prevent the drought situation to turn into famine. A case similar to what was experienced in previous drought years. These affected have already endured cases of conflict, climate shock. I think we may have lost you, Ahmed. What we might do is come back to you in a minute and hopefully your, your network will be a bit stronger, but we'll We'll turn now to you, Al-Khidr. Al-Khidr, could you describe a little bit the international response? You're the country director of, of WFP. Um, <clears throat> you know, what degree have you been able to scale up in the face of such a crisis? Um, and what are some of your priorities now? Okay. Uh, th thank you very much. And good uh, evening if you are in Asia. Good afternoon. Good morning if you are in Far West. Um, First, I would like really to uh, summarize the situation as it has been um, uh, presented by Nemo and Ahmed. First, we are in a situation whereby we call it, we use in April, we said it is at a risk of famine. And now, just as a report, it came that we are at an increased risk of famine. And uh, the second stage to it is... Um, it will be uh, um, uh, famine likely, and then and then famine. So those are the stages. And uh, at this stage, as we speak right now, 7.1 million people um, 
uh, are in crisis and need in need of support. Unfortunately, uh, 2.1 of them in uh, an emergency situation. This, this is the this is the call it IPC class in terms of classification called IPC4. But this is an emergency situation, and about 213,000 at category of famine. Those are IPC5. So with this, we have almost about 800,000 IDP. So we, the, the, the whole entire international community, the humanitarian community, uh, UN, international NGOs, and national, national NGOs, have decided that we go for a prioritization exercise. And that prioritization exercise, basically, uh, for us as WP, is just like taking the food from the mouses of hung hungry people to the mouses of starving people. What does that mean? It means that we have to stop our prevention program. Prevention in, in nutrition program that is dealing with kids uh, under two uh, lactating mothers and pregnant mothers. Then the second uh, decision we have taken in terms of prioritization, we have, because of the resources limited, we have to go for a smaller uh, number of people can be rich with the moderate acute malnutrition. Why we focus on those groups? Because we do not want them to slide into severe acute malnutrition. Because once they are severe, they have to be admitted to hospitals. Then the third decision we have taken is we have to take the internally displaced people who are new. And the fourth one is we have to uh, go into new category of people and we have to uh, provide them with service for only about three, three months. These are hard choices because basically they are about big number under the under crisis stage. Crisis stage with the IPC3 under crisis stage. Those people, we have left them now. We have taken them out of that. But unfortunately, they're going to be at an, there's an opportunity cost going to be there. So what is now important? What is the priority for us right now? The priority right now we must ensure access to food. Scaling up unconditional food assistance and targeting the people suffering the most severe food shortages, as I have described before. The second one is we must prevent deaths due to malnutrition. We have to focus on the moderate acute malnutrition with that big number so that they don't slide into uh, a severe acute malnutrition because farming can be declared as a result of three indicators. One, increase malnutrition. Secondly, a mortality, increase mortality rates. And three, uh, complex indicating uh, food security indica indicators. Those are the three. If they are combined together, we'll attract them. Already, we have an increased uh, malnutrition. And that is why we, we need to focus on this point number two. Point number three, we must treat communicable diseases and control their spread. Diseases such as cholera, measles, and acute water di diarrhea are killers, and especially in the context of severe drought and food insecurity, and associated mass migration, because as I said to you, almost about 800,000 uh, IDPs has moved. The provision of clean water, adequate sanitation, and mass immunization and medical service are key. This is the point, priority number three. Priority number four, we must ensure humanitarian access in hard-to-reach areas, including where insecurity is driving uh, driving uh, 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 driving access challenges and where marginalized population reside 
And this is the last time in 2001 and 2011 and 2017, we were surprised by the number when the people came from insecure area to the, to the secure areas in a very uh, uh, bad, bad situation. And then finally, number, number five as a priority, it is critical that we secure more funding supports. Today, as we speak right now, the humanitarian response plan is only funded about 18%. And the, the, the humanitarian community have moved from drought response to famine prevention response. And now famine prevention response is just being launched uh, in the last two weeks and, 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 and being uh, circulated. For us as well with food program, for the coming six months alone, I'm just giving WP as an example, but others can, can do the same. We need $237 million so that we can save life uh, and we can address the issues of uh, malnutrition and we can stop the slide towards uh, acute malnutrition and the slide towards famine. Thank you very much. Kidder, can I just ask one question as a follow-up there? I mean, if the situation in terms of the prospect of a fifth failed rains, if that occurs, and if you we don't get the level of funding that you're suggesting is is required to stop to stop this slide, what's your prediction for October, November, December period in Somalia? I guess I want you to imagine you have a you have a curve in front of you, and imagine that this curve is identical for 2011 and 2017. In 2011 and 2017, by February we have the peak of IDPs. After February there's a range. Then in May, they were there's a the case of in, uh, uh, malnutrition increased significantly, and after May there's a range. This is the case for 2011 and 2017. This time, we have seen IDPs <clears throat> coming as early as January, even one month earlier than, <clears throat> than, uh, than uh, 2011 and 2017. And already now we are in, in, in June, and as far as early as April, we have seen the malnutrition rate has increased in, in and the rains are not there. The rains which we have described in 2011, 2017 are not there in this, in this after, after February and after, after May. So uh, in 2011 and 2017, the, the, the famine was, was uh, uh, declaring uh, in, in July. I will be very concerned about July, August onwards if we stayed with the level of resources as it stayed right now. If things have not changed, and 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 if we have not uh, scaled up, uh, the worst will happen. And it is still we can we can prevent the worst to happen, but we can avert famine. And that is why we are calling on the international community to act and to act now. Okay, thank you, Al Khidr. Um, I know Ahmed is still having um, video problems, so we'll turn to you now, Mark. Um, Mark, you've obviously been involved in a number of, of responses in Somalia, starting with 1992, but also 2011 and 2017. You've just heard from Al Khidr how severe the situation is looking, um, and from Nemo in terms of the situation for communities on the ground. I mean, drawing on your experience both within the UK government and, and also in your role as emergency relief coordinator, um, 
what lessons and perspectives would you kind of bring to bear at this point and what advice would you have in terms of trying to to mount a, a response that's that's required at this scale okay well thank you Sorsha. thanks to everybody for coming thanks to sarah and everyone for hosting us at um odi let me just um take 10 seconds to do my little pitch on this relief chief uh, if you if you'd like to buy it please use the discount uh, that we're providing everybody with who's at this event there's quite a big discount if you want to buy the book and and we'll we'll um, make sure you have the information on how to do that and um you know it follows from the fact that i've written a long book about this and i could speak for the rest of the week probably on the question you've just asked me but let me just let me make two contextual points and then a couple of specific things about the situation right now in Somalia. The first contextual point is a historical one. Famine used to be ubiquitous. It used to be a normal part of the human experience until very recently. And in fact, roughly the time I was born, people were still saying that was just a, uh, you know, an unavoidable part of the human experience. You'll remember Paul Ehrlich published his book in 1968, telling us that famine was about to consume large parts of the human species, including leading to the end uh, of England, because we would all have been starved to death by 2000. Now, of course, the doomongers were wrong and they got three big things wrong. Firstly, they didn't see the explosion in agricultural output. There's more food available now than there ever has been per person. In other words, even after population growth uh, than there has been um, on the planet um, because of you know, green revolution, irrigation, dealing with pests, storage, transport, and all that. Secondly, though, a much larger proportion of the world's population have incomes which they can use to buy food. That huge reduction in global poverty over the last 50 years has meant that fewer people are reliant on their domestic production. And over the last um, 15 years or so, there's also been, even in the poorest countries, the creation of massive safety net program. So when there are bad times, people can be rescued. And then the other thing that's happened historically is the quality of responses are much better than they used to be. My first job was dealing with the famine in Ethiopia in the mid-1980s. Then it was all about food and shelter and water. Now we know that most people die in famine from diseases. So our responses are much more comprehensive. It's therefore quite shocking that we made all this progress to see that now we are again threatened with the spectre of multiple famines. It's a very shocking thing, and we should be doing a much better job in communicating to the world as a whole how shocking that is. The second contextual point I want to make is about the global food crisis right now. We have the world's worst food crisis for decades um, now, and there's only a dawning realisation of it. It didn't start with what Putin did in Ukraine. It, it was, it's been building up for a while because of a combination of uh, accumulating conflicts and accumulating impacts of climate change and COVID. Uh, but we now have a really serious um, food crisis. Um, food prices much higher than at any time in the last 15 years or so. And we all see that. We all see that whoever we are, people in this room going to their supermarket for their weekly shop, they see the effects. The 10% of the world's population are living in extreme poverty. They see it very, very acutely because for those people, most of their family income is being spent on trying to put enough food on the table. But it's really the 1% of the world's population who are reliant on humanitarian agencies to survive, who are at the 
front end of this global food crisis. And they're in six or seven or eight countries. They're all in the countries we know about. I'll come on to Somalia. It's one of them. But they're all in the places we all know are vulnerable. So we, we know exactly the problem that we're uh, dealing with in this, this global food crisis. And I think I've got a new piece that, that will be coming out shortly. I think basically what we need to see is simultaneous actions in four big areas. Firstly, um, I do think we need to get more food onto the markets, more grain onto the markets. I hope that this diplomatic effort going on to persuade Putin to allow the Ukrainian silos to be accessed will work. I also think that those holding strategic grain reserves need to allow some food onto the market. That's an important thing to do. The second thing is we need to recognize that this is not a short-term problem, in my opinion. We're going to be dealing with the consequences of what Putin's done in Ukraine for some years. And the supply response really is going to be very important. Uh, it, it goes beyond the fact that lots of countries can actually plant more maize and sunflower and wheat. There's also the huge challenge around accessing inputs, especially fertilizer. And there are some real discontinuities and dysfunctionalities in the fertilizer market. Just to give one example, Aliko Dangote has got that huge fertilizer production plant in Nigeria. It is all being exported mostly to the developed world. And there's a real risk building up that for next year and the year after, what we're going to see is huge import shortages in um, agrarian economies, adding to the problems we see now. The third thing that needs to happen then is for those countries which have administrative systems to run safety nets but are indebted or fiscally constrained, there needs to be much more understanding, especially from the IFIs, on their financing needs. <clears throat> Macroeconomic management does matter, but we have a crisis now. And so the, the shareholders of the IFIs should be saying to the institutions, we want you to leverage your balance sheets and your resources to the maximum to help the uh, most vulnerable countries get through this period. But then the fourth and most important thing that needs to happen is a dramatic uptick in humanitarian assistance. That 1% will only be saved, I'm afraid, by substantial help from the humanitarian agencies, and that means help from their donors. And so far, only the US are stepping up to this challenge. The $5 billion that Biden has, has uh, proposed and has, I think, been agreed by the Congress will make a material difference. But one of the things that, that really should be focused on over the next three weeks is what are the EU and the UK and others going to be bringing to the table and a good time for them to be having that question um, forced at them is uh, for the G7 summit um, at the end of this month. Let me just say a couple of things about Somalia in all this context and I've written quite a lot about Somalia and the wider horn in the book and, and yes I was involved in the response in 92 as you said. I was also quite scarred personally by the 2011 experience when I um, you know, we'd become the permanent secretary of DFID. Um, and we were very focused on the Arab Spring and other things. And for a variety of reasons, we missed what was happening in Somalia. And had we been paying more attention and been more energetic, I don't think as many as quarter million people would have lost their lives. Now, fortunately, in 2017, that lesson was learned. There was a better understanding of the risk and there was a better response. And some of the things that happened in 2017, I think need to happen in people by text message systems, which weren't available um, in 2011. And 2011, Al-Shabaab were effective in stymieing the relief operation, which they couldn't do in the same way in 2017. But I think 
just just a few when you when you've got a problem like this what you need is a few things you can actually focus your level of effort and your um, attention on so here's my list firstly the world bank um through ida has much bigger crisis response and early action windows now than it used to be it is somalia now that it has normal relations with the imf is somalia accessing the crisis response window and the early action window the bank and the fund in the last five years have got much better at channeling funds directly to the agencies part of the pre-arrears clearance grant um before the debt relief was given to WFP, they funded the ICRC directly as well. What is the conversation going on to unlock that money? Secondly, how much of the new Biden 5 billion is going to be accessed by Somalia? Obviously, WFP are in the most important position there. But you guys who care about Somalia, you really need to be advocating and lobbying and drawing attention to the problems of Somalia because they're not cutting through in the huge amount of noise we see all around the system. And then thirdly, in other places um, where really there should be a stronger reaction, and there's nowhere that's more shameful and embarrassing than the UK at the moment, what are civil society and the international NGOs and how are you plugging into the media to try to get this onto the agenda a little bit? You really have, I'm, I'm sorry to be brutal with you, you need to be doing much better on that than you're doing at the moment. If you, if you, expect to move the dial on this. And we're not all uh, months from now going to be wondering why hundreds of thousands of people have died when, when we knew it was going to happen and we didn't do enough to stop it. Thanks, Mark. I'm just going to ask you a follow-up question, but maybe while I'm doing that, for those of you online, if you want to post any questions that you might have for the, uh, the panel now, um, I'm just wondering, based on 2017 and this issue of cut-through, um, you know, how did you manage to have cut through and a kind of, a, I guess, a no regrets and a never again approach in 2017 that was absent in 2011? And, you know, I understand what you're saying in terms of um, trying to get media attention, trying to get it on the radar. But, you know, there's a lot of other crises, and I think Ukraine in particular, that is really overshadowing this. Yeah, so one difference between now and 2017 is 2017 was a busy, noisy period, but not to the extent yeah. that we have now. And, um, you know, you just have to deal with that. Um, there's no point complaining about it. You need to work out how you're going to cut through and how you need to change your communications to deal with this um, situation. And there has been a bit of there has been a bit of progress on that. If you look back a month or six weeks ago, then these issues were a bit less current. So, you know, there's a little bit of progress, but not nearly enough to um, to get where we need to be. Um, well, I, I've, I've sort of told a long story about 2017 in the book, and it's partly, you know, it's partly because I had personally been quite scarred by what happened in 2011 and felt a degree of, I, I basically felt that if I'd done some things differently in 2011, maybe things wouldn't have been as bad. Now, maybe I was wrong to think that, but I did think that. And in 2017, I was in a position where it was possible to exert a bit of influence. Um, and so, you know, I went to Mogadishu in January and February, I think, 2017, and talked to people and brought back messages to the British government and persuaded them, cross-government, that we needed to be drawing this to the attention of other people as well. And because there was a bit more bandwidth to cope with that issue then, um, you know, we were more successful in, in mobilising a better response. There was also very good prioritization in 2017. There was good use of the 
um, targeting systems. We knew where the most vulnerable people were and how to get them, uh, how to get to them. And there was also, um, you know, good use, as I said earlier, of the um, modern technology. So once more attention was being focused on the problem, the response was a higher quality than, than sometimes it's been in the past. Okay, great. We've got a few questions coming in online, so I'm going to 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 call these out. I know Ahmed, you're you're still offline, um, but one of them is, um, what do we do now to minimise the drought impact in Somalia over the longer term? So Nemo, I know you had some thoughts about that. Um, maybe we'll turn to you in a minute around that. Um, there's a question from Liz Cabin, who's in the office of the Special Envoy for the Horn of Africa who's wondering about um, the prospects for peace and security in the region because of the drought. So what will be the, the knock-on implications? Um, and there's also a question about engaging with Al-Shabaab um, and areas under their control um, and what efforts are being made to ensure that there's access to, to Al-Shabaab controlled areas and how much of that is an issue in today's crisis. Um, as we, we let you think about, about those, um, and I, I think we have just Nemo online at the moment, so Nemo, you'll be on the firing line for some of these questions um, while we wait for others to, to rejoin. I also want to maybe um, turn to the room and see if there's any questions from uh, the audience that we have in the room. Please, so maybe take two um, and then we'll come back to, to the panel. Um, so we have one question here. Maybe Hassan, if you yeah, Hussein, yeah. Um, thank you very much. Uh, my name is uh, Hussein Mursal and uh, I have been working with the Horn of Africa for quite some time, both directly and indirectly as well. Currently, I'm a, a consultant working with Somali groups in, in country to uh, help in coping with this thing. I have a couple of uh, questions. You know, first, what what's the difference this time? You know, wh why is it that bigger than what we saw in 2017 or earlier than that? But linked to that is we are focusing more on the distribution and the delivery rather than the reception of the people because we got reports that you know how inclusive is this? You know, because because of the difficulty in access, because of the difficulty, in, because of the difficulty of access, and you know we choose where we are able to do, you know, quicker, and at the expense of the people who are really marginalised. And also there is this phenomena where, as Mark was saying, we haven't maybe done good messaging to attract international aid, because Somalia is known for political problems and so on, and there are. There are now, for those of you who don't know, the political allocation is done on 4.5. That means the major clans will take 80% and more, and therefore, and this was supposed to be a very short period of time, but now it dragged it on so far that it's now seeping into the society. We are, we are hearing that many politicians are putting pressure on the UN also to divide the humanitarian aid according to that. And also at the schools, 
we know that children from the point five are being mocked at school. So I think if we now change and say, you know, we are really targeting the people who need, you know, all Somalis are not poor. You know, there are many who have support outside and inside and those who don't. And I think unless we come out with that and find out what happened, I think then our message would be more critical because the results are already very few and therefore we have to be very innovative and say, listen, before we talk about big things, we are sure that at least 80 to 90% of our target are there. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Hussein. I'm actually going to take these round of questions. We have Al-Khidr back on, online um, now. So while we have you, Al-Khidr, there's a question about Al-Shabaab um, and access to Al-Shabaab controlled areas. How much of an issue and a priority is that now? There's a question about you know, the longer term um, response and how to respond now in a way that ensures that we're ready for the, the longer term uh, crisis. A question about implications for conflict and security in the region. Um, then we had a question from Hussein um, about whether we're focusing, how inclusive the response is and whether we're really focusing on, on the marginalized. Um, so I think we've got quite a lot to, to go with there. Uh, Nemo, we'll turn to you first, um, and maybe you can pick up one or two of those questions. Um, then we'll turn to um, you, Al-Khidr, um, and then back to you, to, to you, Mark. So Nemo, over to you. Thank you very much, um, Sasha, and, and thank you for those great questions. Um, um, I, I, I thought, let me start with maybe adding to what Marcus already said uh, in the differences between 2011, 2017 and 2022. Um, particularly in 2017, um, the lessons were learned from 2011, we've applied it in 2017, yet we're struggling to do the same um, in 2017, in 2022. Now, the, the, the biggest difference is the fact that there, were, there was more money available. Um, um, there, I have a couple of figures of what um, funding that was given, particularly the, to the humanitarian sector from each um, uh, donor government. For example, the United States of America uh, provided 368 million for the drought response in 2017. And these figures are, are actually from Archer's records. United Kingdom has given 235 million. The European Union has given 185 million. Germany, 125 million. Japan, 30 million. Sweden, 26 billion. These were the figures that were seen appropriate to address the crisis and to support those who are the most vulnerable and reliant on humanitarian assistance. Now that is not happening um, this year. Um, it's not happening in 2021. It hasn't happened yet. Um, and I also, um, I'm with you, Mark, when you say there, there isn't enough attention. Um, yes, but I don't think there's enough people listening as well. The, the response isn't coming out clearly uh, because of all these other issues that, um, that have taken the focus away from the situation in, in, in the Horn of Africa, particularly in Somalia. Um, it's a protracted um, humanitarian basket case. There is insecurity. The Somalis' problems are 30 years old. And I think the world by now um, would be have sufficient lessons to learn how to how to address these. Now, is there the political will? You know, uh, we see the support the Ukrainians is, is having at the moment, as opposed to what the the um, the, the sub-Saharan Africa gets in in situations like this. So I think uh, foreign policy, um, uh, 
counterterrorism. I think the climate shocks and the climate, um, um, uh, the, the, the um, Somalia, including, I mean, most of Africa, Somalia, including, actually um, did not contribute to, to the climate crisis that we're in at the moment, or very, very minimally contribute, yet are burning the brunt of, of, the, of the impact. Um, with what we need to do right now and, and how we do an inclusive um, response. Um, in fact, um, the, the, the conversation of, of ensuring that we're having access in strategy to um, ensure that those communities who are under the lockdown or under the um, uh, uh, jurisdiction of al-Shabaab, uh, whatever the word might be, um, is, is something that we're discussing, but it should be the priority. It should be the priority of the federal government. It should be the priority of those who have the political leverage to, to, to do so. Um, we are responsible in ensuring we're doing principal humanitarian um, that's impartial, neutral. Um, and also, um, uh, I, I, I think I'm getting a little <laughs> carried away with, with this question, but it's really it's important that we're engaging uh, if we want to um, um, deliver uh, a principal humanitarian uh, with, with al-Shabaab as well. For the last 10 years, I don't think there has been any proper engagement with al-Shabaab to gain access, whether it's um, the, the federal government or whether it's the humanitarian or, or, or the, 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 um, the international community. Um, when we talk about um, ensuring there is inclusive response, um, I think we are doing better in that sense because some of the key and priority area ones are actually some of the areas where the most vulnerable communities are. And that's what Al-Khadir was talking about before, that um, we have um, started to talk about having a principal response and prioritizing the country. 66 uh, districts out of the 74 in the country are, is affected um, with, with this uh, drought. Um, but we are starting to respond based on the need um, and not based on um, um, access or... or um, I think we'll we'll turn back to El Khidr. El Khidr, um, we were just hearing from Nemo in terms of um, access to Al Shabaab controlled areas, um, and I think we've just lost El Khidr. Um, so I'm going to turn to you. Um, um, so. Um, I'm wondering if you want to pick up this issue about some of the longer term um, uh, implications, um, but also we've had a question about um, the UK and the World Bank. Um, so really agreeing with your point that there are opportunities with the World Bank, um, but also opportunities with, with the UK and other governments. Um, and a, a question, I guess, a plea as to how do we actually put pressure on on the World Bank and how do we get this up the agenda? So, um, so yeah. Um, okay. If you want to pick well, up some um, of those questions, I, I mean, Hassan asked a very important question about what is different now compared to 2011, 2017. I think the two things really that are importantly different are firstly the global context, um, and it, as I said, it's not just what Putin's done in Ukraine; it's also um, the accumulation of humanitarian need around the world because of conflict, climate change, the pandemic, um, that's added to the total scale of humanitarian need. And of course, there's the state of geopolitics. Um, 
you know, which which is less conducive to dealing with these problems in a collective, collaborative way. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, this is the fourth year now of uh, very poor rains, and that, you know, um, of course, normally there's it's more than one year normally, but but this appears to be an unusually severe um, drought. So vulnerability levels are, are higher. I think those are the two main things that are different. Um, the capability of responding is, if anything, stronger now than it was even in 2017. So um, the, um, well, the World Bank has shareholders who are the countries of the world and um, it also has a concern for its reputation. It's like every big system. It is, mm. it is susceptible to being influenced. And all of you, you know, listening into the conversation or being part of the conversation have ways to engage with that. The, you know, uh, it, it is, um, you know, extremely frustrating probably for all of us who are sitting in this room in London to see the state of Britain's um, engagement with these issues. But um you know the best way to respond is to try and keep it uh, try and keep pushing on it on the uh through the political uh channels to talk to your parliamentarians for i do think as i said earlier that um you know think tanks and ngos and others who part of whose role is advocacy need to work out whether they're dialing their advocacy button to the right place now i don't think you know, I don't think they are. I mean, very candidly, as I've said to, um, you know, a number of people across the leadership of the sector. Um, and I mean, my point really is um, there's not enough cut through. And if you haven't got any cut through, you need to work out what you can do to get some cut through um, and uh, not be not be t uh, deterred unless you want to look back full of regret. So I'm going to bring it back to the room. Um, unfortunately, we're having technological problems. So we, I think, are offline at the moment. Um, but hopefully some of our colleagues oh, will come in. We have Nemo, we have you back. Um, so I'm going to do another round of questions in the room. Um, and hopefully we can hold on tight to Nemo. Um, and uh, we have Mark in the room as well. And um, maybe Ahmed or Al Khidr will be able to join. So um, I know you wanted to come in, Bashir, and I, I know that, and yeah. I know, thank you so much. And um, no, it's a really interesting discussion on this. I actually um, just have uh, kind of three questions or comments um, uh, for other distinguished panelists. So um, you talked about, um, you know, the international uh, organizations and stuff, but what about other actors? I think sometimes we go through, um, uh, look through a tunnel of just kind of like, oh, the, the big organization, the big UN. What about private sector? What about diasporas? So I think we need to kind of look a bit more comprehensively about who else is involved. Secondly, um, I really like the fact that you already mentioned the, the need to look at this, uh, you know, humanitarian is not just short term, but also long term. I know a lot of people don't like the term nexus, but I think we need to look at development. How is it in practice? We talk about the theories, but what is a practice? What's really happening on the ground? Thirdly, um, uh, oh, and the, the third layer to this, localization. Again, this again comes to the local actor. So I want to hear from Nemo uh, in terms of how does that look like for them on the ground in reality? Is it going to be the same thing as for over the last couple of years? Um, have we learned anything during COVID time? 
um, the pandemic has really, everyone is saying, you know, things have changed, the opportunities have changed, but have we seen it? So uh, a lot of questions. I would love to discuss other points, but uh, I will leave it here for now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Abdurrahman Sharif. Uh, I used to work in a previous life uh, in Somalia with the NGO consortium and also with the government. So I was part of those negotiations uh, with the World Bank. Um, uh, but uh, but just to highlight uh, what, what was just mentioned, a key factor, I think, in the 2011 response was the role of the diaspora, particularly around, you know, raising awareness and mobilizing uh, the media here and, 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 and civil society organizations and government uh, around, around the crisis and in 2017 uh, as well. Uh, I think what you fear, what we're facing here is also an impact that COVID has had and uh, a heightened cost of living on the diasporas as well, and that they're also financially suffering in the countries where, where they're living. Uh, uh, but that's a, an excellent point. My second point was, well, my key point here was on the uh, use of the word famine, right? And Mark said that it was quite common when you're young, very young, uh, and, and now it's less common. Uh, and I'm, you know, looking at this description that Nemo said, uh, um, uh, it seems that, you know, the examples she's mentioning are all examples clearly that, you know, show signs of famine. Uh, and yet we are not yet mentioning that word. Uh, in 2011, you know, it took a statement that was done in June to say that there was a famine, June, July or August, I don't remember. Uh, and yet it arrived, you know, three, four, five months before. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, we're talking about risk of famine, heightened risk. We might, you know, add another adjective afterwards. Are we not uh, already in that situation uh, right now? Question mark, uh, because that's going to affect really the advocacy and the messages that we pass here in the country and that we pass also to, to policymakers and, and politicians. Thank you. Great point. Sarah, maybe you can ask questions and contributions as well. Well, I was actually going to make a comment more than uh, more than ask a question. I just wanted to reiterate and stress what Mark said in terms of the lack of cut through um, of these messages. I'm not sure there is the lack of cut through, or is actually the lack of, you know, developing the priorities around the messages as a community. Because uh, quite frankly, I haven't seen much of that happening at all. Um, and so it's not as, a, as the messages are not cutting through; is that we actually know even putting those messages out there, not in the right way, not with the right priorities, you know, not, you know, sort of more uh, collectively as a community that is, you know, focused on these issues, not just in the UK, but also globally. And so it's, it's more of a, um, an exhortation to all of us who are leaders in this, you know, in this space to really rethink once again, you know, how, you know, we've been incredibly distracted in the, just by the Ukraine crisis, one that is, you know, massively um, well funded and supported and a lot of you know the Mediterranean community has also sort of jumped on uh, um, a response that quite frankly could have been led by other actors and so it's, a, it's a real for me a moment to reflect on what the, our priorities really should be and how we um, respond to those. Okay and for, for those of you online because we're having technological issues we're turning this into a, a discussion in the room as well as online um, hoping that some of our online colleagues can join us as well. So I'll turn to, to Mark and then we'll bring it back back to you, uh, to Mark and um, hopefully Sorry. also others. So yeah, to Mark, both. yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, I just, uh, I mean, part of it's a comment and part of it uh, uh, a reflection on my time as the humanitarian coordinator in 2011 uh, and time there. Uh, to look at the nature of famine, I was interested in uh, Kiddo's uh, 
uh, view of the response because my experience in 2011 uh, was very much that, uh, uh, and we talked earlier about the need for a mixed response. I mean, in fact, the diaspora contributed a lot more uh, than any others, but also had the advantage of getting access and penetration in a way that the international community couldn't. So I think it's important to look at that in terms of mixed response. So I think that the issue of the diaspora is now different in the sense that they're facing the economic crisis that we have in Europe. And so likely remittances are not in the same level or, or, or support. So I think that that's one thing in terms of the response. I do worry that we look at famine response in a very traditional way. One of the issues about talking about uh, and using the term famine, and I discussed this earlier, is that it tends to lead to very stereotyped responses and not necessarily the right responses. So I'd like us to look a bit more in a bit more depth at what goes on in Somalia. I mean, what was important in 2011 was actually to look at the economic dynamic that was taking place. And my feeling was that it was market intervention that made more difference uh, than, the, the, than aid. So uh, I would hope that we end up with a more nuanced or uh, a response to this rather than the, the knee-jerk response that famine evokes which is to answer the last question why in 2011 we were more, uh, I mean, I made the famine statement, but it was a political statement. And it was a political statement that was made to get action because we couldn't get in any other way. And it was particularly a statement to force the Americans to act because the current Secretary of State said she wouldn't provide aid till she saw people dying. Yeah, I'm happy to say that on the record because I said it at the time. Uh, <laughs> you can work out who the Secretary of State was. But uh, so, I, I, as I said, I think my plea is for both a more uh, analytical approach to the current nature of famine, which I think will be different from previous ones, uh, but also to look at different types of interventions, uh, which I think we're forced to now with less aid be being available. So we have Nemo back online. And while you are online, uh, Nemo, I'd like you to pick up this issue um, of, of the famine. We heard from Abdurrahman here in the room as to whether, you know, we're, we're tiptoeing around this word and whether the word needs to be used, um, possibly for political reasons, but also whether we, that would then require a more analytical or thoughtful approach on the ground. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the, that issue um, and then there's also been a lot of questions about the role of diaspora or other groups who have proven so important um, in previous responses and what role they can play and what are, role are they playing in relation to the response currently. So over to you, Nemo. Thank you very much. Um, I'm not sure exactly uh, what was heard, what I was saying um, last time. Um, it showed me I was connected and then just dropped once. Okay, um, I won't go back to my previous comments. Um, so yes, I think we are um, dancing around the word famine um, and it has to be a collective decision, but it also needs to be a better analysis on the situation on the ground for us to say, to declare a famine. Um, and it, it does, I mean, it, there's also um, sorts of um, implications when that happens, but I'm not, I mean, I'm with Mark uh, um, as well, and um, that is like, who spoke last, and I could hear him. Um, does it need to, the situation needs to get into famine for us to actually respond? Um, do people masses have to die for us to respond um, adequately? 
Um, I, th I think you know those questions are need to need to be um, you know addressed and 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 discussed in these various different um, levels, whether it's the 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 donor community or whether it's the governments, um, especially the Somali federal government as well. Um, in, in, in this crisis, definitely what it lacks is leadership. There is there there hasn't been a leadership, a proper leadership uh, from the government level. Uh, with, with you know. We've had um, almost a year and a half of the government focused on the political. Now we have a president in place. Now we have a special representative um, to the family uh, um, named and um, appointed. Um, so, so I'm, and that's actually been gaining momentum. So whether that changes the landscape, it remains to be seen. We also need um, a donor a government to take leadership as well and to, to galvanize response. I mean, the US is definitely doing great. Uh, but maybe US, USA uh, needs to take that leadership to to, to ensure that uh, um, it's um, um, sort of asking their counterparts to, to respond equally or, or to take up responsibilities. Uh, uh, the differences between 2017-2011 and this one is that the, the situation globally is completely different. We're actually playing a different um, uh, a different. Um, situation, food prices are high, high globally, we have the impact of COVID-19, we had the desert locust invasion um, that uh, since, 20, since December 2019 has been uh, uh, there. Um, so I think that, that, that we need to take us not completely reliant on the humanitarian sector, but we do need to take leadership because we do, we do need to save lives. This is what's stake at the moment. We need to immediately save lives um, adequate response to address situation and ensure that we're putting measures, uh, resilience, development programming um, in place so that the, these vulnerable communities are able to withstand these recurrent shocks that will certainly uh, come back again and again. Um, with the role of the diaspora, absolutely. I mean, the diaspora is and continue to play a role. I mean, the Somali communities would not survive this long if they did not have the role of the diaspora, supporting whether it's the individual um, household or whether it is supporting um, and uh, um, you know the, the larger community as well. Um, there is a, a different um, sort of understanding of where the role lies at the moment. I think that leadership is also missing. Um, within the diaspora communities to ensure or for a more visible response. Um, um, and also, there might be, um, like I said, we're in a different um, uh, experience at all completely um, where the, the world is globally, is that uh, families in the diaspora are also being impacted by the higher food prices, the fact that people have lost their jobs due to COVID um, restrictions. Um, so, so we need to do more. Um, at all levels, whether it's the political front, economic front, and also the humanitarian. But the response for the humanitarians is that we need to save lives. We need to save them now. Over to you, Sosha. Thank you, Nemo. Um, Mark, I'm going to turn back to you. There were a number of earlier questions about longer term issues and conflict issues, but also kind of more recent questions around famine um, and the, the use of that, the risks of that, but also the implications of that in terms of the response, which I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on. Mm. Well, I mean, the long term solution to these problems is to develop, is to get rich. And that is what's happened across most of the planet 
um, that hadn't enjoyed the early benefits of the agriculture industrial revolution and the you know huge expansion of industrial commodities uh, until um, after the Second World War. What's happened in the last 50, 60 years is most countries have developed enormously. Uh, and those three things I talked about at the beginning as more food, people have higher incomes, we have a better response. That's why we don't have famine. So, you know, the countries which are still vulnerable will always be vulnerable until we make better progress, helping them develop faster and more fully. I, I, I mean, I think that diaspora does have a huge um, role to play, actually, not least because diaspora communities themselves can influence the domestic political system. And so Somali communities here, particularly in certain parts of the country, will will be listened to a lot by Westminster MPs. I, I know that because you know, I spend a fair amount of time in Westminster talking to MPs about various things and they talk about who's raising what with them. Um, and I don't, I mean, let, let's not, you know, 2011 was straight after the financial crash. Austerity. 2011 wasn't such a great moment to be trying to deal with these problems either. So I don't really think it's about that so much as uh, about other things. On the um, famine declaration system, I mean, I think that basically the, the, the uh, international system for famine declaration is broken, basically. The three criteria, uh, you know, the proportion of people who are um, totally destitute, have no means of income, the proportion of, of young children who are acutely malnourished, the number of people dying every day, those are fine. And gathering the data and publishing that is fine. The bit of the system that's broken, though, is that to, to go from that data to a formal famine declaration, you have to fight your way through the Famine Review Committee and you can be blocked by the authorities of the country that you're engaging with. And that's what's happened in Tigray. You know, at the end of my time in the UN, it was clear to me that there was famine in Tigray. And the only reason it wasn't declared was because the Ethiopian authorities were quite effective in slowing down the whole declaration system. So, and I talked again about what to do about that in the book. I think we do need to try to um, find a way back into that because, because the current system is not um, functional, I don't think. Yeah, we've done a, a lot of work on the IPC uh, review and some of the, the politics around that. So very aware of that as well. Uh, we'll take one last round of questions. Um, so over to you, Gareth. Um, and if there's any last question, I think I missed you as well. Um, and then we'll we close. Over. Thanks very much, uh, Gareth Owen, Humanitarian Director at Save the Children. I just want to bring us back to the urgency of the situation. Last week, I sent my deputy to Somalia. Uh, at the weekend, she was in Kismayo, uh, looking at children dying in an ICU. Today, she's in Baidoa, looking at children dying in an ICU. The data, the last nutrition data, shows the hockey stick happening. And it's in the agripastoralist areas of Babakul, the breadbasket of Somalia. The Rahanwain live there. They are the marginalized. And they are the ones who will do the dying this time, at the same time in the summer, as they did in 2011 and as they did in 1992. Now, between the Jubilee Bunting and Boris, we have a tough ask here to break through. But we've got to do it. We've got a Guardian journalist with us there. And hopefully we can start to see this media push happen. But the urgency cannot be overstated. Right now, we can scale as we did in 2017. Mark, you did an amazing job. It was earlier in the year and we knew that we we're going to have a tough ask this year. The program is intact. In, in 2017, we had a $100 million response pretty much by this time in the year. All we're lacking is money. We can, we've got exactly the same mechanisms for the cash distribution. The ICUs and the treatment centers are necessary. It will not, they, you will not treat 
severe acute malnutrition with money. It, it's an emergency medical intervention. We're ready to do it. Right now, we just don't have the money. I think I'll turn to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for this great discussion. And just echoing what you just say, I also um, see that what we are lacking now is the money. So um, I'm curious, I don't know if El Kidir Dalum is still online. He was lost. Okay, because he mentioned that um, for him, priority number one was uh, to warranty access to food. However, he mentioned as four and five. Uh, humanitarian access and more funding. So I was wondering um, if, he, if he could share with us more ideas on how we can urgently give access to food without closing this very concerning funding gap that we are facing now. But I have another question for, for Mr. Lowcock. Um, at the beginning of your earlier speech, and now a bit connected with what you say uh, in the last question, um, you mentioned that diplomatic efforts are needed to engage with Mr. Putin and put more food on, on the markets, if I don't recall. Um, a civil society, because most of us here are civil society, what do you think are the number one or two key diplomatic efforts we could be trying to promote, advocate for? Thank you. So, so Mark, do you want to pick up that question there? And sorry, I think we'll have to close questions um, and then we'll turn back to Nemo. Well, I think I'm basically in the same place as Gareth is. And if I were you in the civil society sector, I would be pushing every button I could find on um, mobilizing the politicians who can unlock some money. I mean, you all have networks across Europe. Um, you can be talking to your US counterparts. You can be thinking about the people who will be scratching away at this in Westminster. Um, and you can um, talk to interested um, journalists and um, try and paint a graphic picture of the sort of graphic that, that Gareth has. And that, that's probably the most important thing to do right now. So, Nemo, we have you back online. Um, over to you for some final comments. We've just heard some powerful testimony about how bad things are in Kismayo, in Baidoa um, and in other contexts. And over to you for the, for the last words. Thank you very much, Sasha, for organizing this event in the first place. And, and it's really great to have the discussion, but it shouldn't be discussion alone. We do need to talk, talk to our parliamentarians, we talk to our politicians. We need to knock every door that we can to try and save lives. Um, the, uh, I spoke about Obah, this million Obahs at the moment. So like there's hundreds of Obahs in Somalia at the moment. Um, uh, there are families who are unable to provide one single meal for their kids, for their children. Um, it's really, it's important. And I am definitely with Gareth. What is different this time is that there's no money available on the ground for partners to implement and address these life-saving interventions. So money is what's needed. Fast and reliable money going direct into... Oh, Am I, am I, can I be heard? Am I, can you still hear me? Yep, we can still hear you, Nemo. Oh, okay, I'll just, I'll just summarize very quickly. So really, uh, what we need is leadership. What we need is money on the ground that is fast and effective. We also need to ensure that we're thinking about, as we save lives, to ensure that we are putting measures in place in terms of resilience building development there needs to be more investment um, um, to ensure that 
um, the, 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 the communities are able to cope with these shocks. Um, as I said, 2017, the huge difference between 2017, 2011 and, and now is that there was money available this time uh, and when we were responding to the, to the droughts. Um, so money is what is needed. I, I, I definitely not saying money is going to resolve all the problems, but to save lives, to make sure that kids have enough to eat, to ensure that uh, um, people are not dying, to ensure that medical uh, supplies available, to ensure that we are um, um, addressing the already acute, what, what, you know, after diarrhea disease, the needs of outbreak, is we do need money for partners to, to respond and address the situation over to Scotia. Thank you very much, Nemo. And well, I'm afraid we'll have to end it there. So a big thank you to, to you, Nemo, for, for joining us and battling through the, the Wi-Fi and technological problems. And of course, thank you to, to Ahmed um, and to Al-Khidr as well uh, for their earlier comments. And a big thank you for Mark to, to you, Mark, for, for joining us here in person. Um, and a last, I guess, plug for your book um, that um, can draw on the wealth of your knowledge. Um, Sarah's been putting in the chat the discount code for those of you who would like to... Um, to buy it online and we'll share it here again. Um, so that's it for from HPG now. Um, please do tweet um, and continue to uh, raise attention on the crisis. You've heard how severe it is, how much concern there is on the ground, um, how much there's a need for cut through and for political attention. So please do continue to raise um, your alerts and concerns about the crisis so that we can all do our bit in terms of getting the message out. So thank you to all of you uh, today. And for those of you in the room, we'll break now for coffee before we reconvene.